0: And what I said makes it difficult. It's about not only about the future, but it's about two events. And you have to look at it as Jesus is uh, predicting the destruction of the temple. And we know that that happened at, in 70 A.D. when the, the uh, Roman army came in and totally destroyed Jerusalem and, and tear, tore down every stone in the temple. That happened in 70 A.D. And then the rest of the chapter seems to indicate something that happens at the end of the age, which is thousands of years later. And what Jesus does, he's answering a question that the disciples asked when he warns them about the temple being destroyed. He says, when is this going to happen, and what are the signs of your coming? In other words, Jesus is saying, don't connect the two together. And so he says, you're going to have the... the temple being destroyed and then you're going to have the son of man coming at a different age call that prophetic foreshortening but the main point is we need to be prepared prepared for tribulation trials and troubles and when you read this chapter I just want to give you the principles I use to look at the whole thing one is it's difficult and people disagree number two it's about his coming History's going to an end of the age. We're not circular, we're linear. We're going to a time when history is going to end with the coming of Christ and the establishment of the new heaven and the new earth. But we don't know where he comes, that's point three. And number four, whenever he comes, we're to be prepared, that's point four. And while we're waiting, we're to preach the gospel and bring glory to God. And so if you lay that grid over it, it'll keep you from wandering off into speculation and falsehood. Matthew 24, verse 36 and following. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. This is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. one will be taken and the other left. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let the house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is faithful and wise servant, whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household, to give them their food at proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But, but suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour when he is not aware of, and he will place him with the hypocrites He will cut him into pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The Word of God to God's people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these words that Jesus spoke on the Mount of Olives about your return and about our preparation. Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and minds to understand your Word today? And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Most of you have heard or know kind of how I prepare my sermons, and I prepare my sermons the way Roy Taylor taught me at RTS, probably the most productive, practical, helpful class that I've taken in seminary, and what I do is I read the passage that's before us, and I come up with the major point, and then I turn that major point into a question, and then I answer it with my outline or I turn it into a statement that I want to prove with my outline. And then when I get to my outline, I always go E-E-I-A. I I explain the passage, I expand the passage, I illustrate the passage, and I apply it. Explain it, expand it, illustrate it, and apply it. And I do that three times. And then I make sure on Saturday or Sunday morning that I color those illustrations where I know that I have illustrations in the text or in my sermon text. And sometimes I begin to wonder, do I spend too much time on illustrations until I get to this passage? And Jesus uses lots of his time talking on the Mount of Olives in illustrations. He talks about the coming of the Lord, and then he, after he does all of that about the skies and the tribulation and the trials and everything, and then what he does, he closes the chapter with three illustrations, that of Noah, that of a thief, and that of a servant. And then in the next chapter, he closes it not only with three stories, three parables that teach the same thing. And what Jesus is trying to do or is doing in this passage is this. He's trying to say, don't miss my point. The point is that you don't know when I'm returning, but be prepared. And as you look at this passage, I'm going to divide it up as uh, EEIA. Uh, I've already explained the passage last week. We expand it with Noah. We illustrate it with the thief. And we apply it with the servant. Let's expand it with Noah. It says, In the day of the coming of the Lord will be like the days of Noah. They'll be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Their time will be taken up doing these things. Uh, It's amazing that he uses these things of eating and drinking and marrying and giving marriage. Have you ever planned a wedding? It's like planning the invasion of Normandy, you know? Uh, and about that costly, you know. And it consumes you. And so the picture here is these people consumed with planning a wedding, a marriage, and doing fun things. But he doesn't say they're doing anything wrong. He doesn't mention that they're committing adultery or immorality or, or murder or uh, coveting or idolatry. He just lists that life is being consumed by these things that are fun these things that are happy, these things that are full of joy. But he says, they'll be just like the days of Noah. And when you go back and you look at Noah in chapter 6 of Genesis, I just want you to be reminded that the reason God sent the flood was because wickedness had spread over all the land. And in Genesis chapter 5 and following, God says, I am grieved or sorry That I made man, because all of his thoughts are only evil all the time. Did you hear that? All of his thoughts are only evil all the time. And because man was completely evil, God was almost saying, I'm starting over. And he found, but Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Noah found grace. God's grace made this man different. And God tells Noah about his displeasure and how he's going to judge and wipe out everything that creeps and swims in the ocean. He's going to wipe away everything by this flood. And he gives Noah the dimensions of the ark. And you don't know how long it took, but if you look at the end of chapter 5, Noah is 500. If you look at the end of chapter 6, Noah is 600. So you have the idea that it took a better part of a hundred years to build that thing. That's an assumption that I would make just playing with those numbers, not being completely accurate or technical, but the idea is it took a long time. But it said that Noah not only built the ark according to God's prescription, description. that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. You read that in Second Peter chapter 3. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Now, what does that make you think of? If you had wickedness all over the world, if only evil existed in all, all the time in everybody, and you had this one man that had found grace, and he's called the preacher of righteousness in the New Testament, that why he built it, he was telling people the why behind the building. You know, can you imagine? I can't even think of a... a comparable illustration but you're out in the middle of a desert and you're building a, a boat and people come by and say man this is a big boat and he goes yeah it's you know bigger than a football field what's a football well you know that's not happening but anyway it was big it was huge and they were saying well what are you doing this for well God told me he's going to judge the world and this is going to be the way that he saves his faithful people why don't you repent of your sins and get in he had to be doing that he probably had to be saying, you can't live like that, like John the Baptist. You can't have your brother's wife. You can't live in immorality. You can't live in a incestuous situation. You can't live in drunkenness. You can't live in... He had to be pointing out the unrighteousness and the righteousness of God. And he's saying salvation is when you believe these things are wrong enough to turn from them and get on the boat. The boat was salvation. And if you go to Second Peter chapter 3, not now but this afternoon, you'll see that the judgment of the end of the world is compared to the judgment in, in this Genesis 6 in the flood. And the ark is seen to be the method of salvation of God's people. And they not only didn't listen to him, they mocked him. Now you can find that also in Second Peter chapter 3. You're not only... You know, foolish, but you're you're crazy. You're absolutely mad. You know, we've never had water like that. We've never done that. And God judging the world. You know, God's not going to judge the world. Can't you just hear them? Can't you hear them today? You know, you talk about God judgment and that everybody's going to stand before the judgment seat of God, and people laugh. But it's not a laughing matter. And it's a call to repentance and a call to faith. The point is that what had happened in their lives is that they had allowed life to squeeze out eternal life. They had allowed the everyday enjoyment to overshadow the eternal enjoyment of God. It wasn't that they were doing bad, it was just that god had been replaced by something else i want to read a paragraph by Ligon and then a paragraph by uh, william hendrickson and he said and interestingly there is nothing absolutely nothing wrong with anything that jesus gives in this list jesus doesn't say when i come again there are going to be thieves and murders and pillaging and lusting all that may be true but that is not what jesus says why because he wants to highlight that these people are going to be preoccupied with mundane activities, that they have forgotten the greater spirituality of life. It is being so wrapped up in the routine of daily life that God is pushed to the periphery and forgotten. He is something that is plugged into your schedule, maybe a couple hours a week, maybe one hour a week, but the rest of life is dominated by the thinking of the temporal and has replaced the eternal on the list of our priorities. And then he quotes William Henderson. When the soul becomes entirely wrapped up in the mundane things, however appropriate they are, eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, so that these matters become ends in themselves, and spiritual tasks are neglected, they're no longer a blessing to us, they have become a curse. They have become evidences of gross materialism, false security, and a cold selfishness. You see, in America, our problem isn't probably going to, that we're going to face physical persecution, but that our material stuff is going to choke out the spiritual life of, of people. Jesus said, you know, that you sow the seed on the ground, that's the word of God, and some falls on the hard heart, and the birds come and take it up. Some fall on a shallow heart and persecution comes and burns it up. But some falls on a deeper level and it falls on the thorny ground and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire to get wealthy choke out the Word of God. The mundane things. I heard an illustration about a man who was fly fishing. I wish I knew how to do that. That sounds like fun, but he was going to his favorite spot, which was on a river that had a small waterfall uh, downstream, and he liked to fish close to it because that's where he caught the most fish, and he's out there in his waders, and he got to chasing a fish, you know. He just kept getting a bite, and he kept going further on. And finally, he got a little bit too close to the edge, and he slipped on his rock, and water filled up his waders and he couldn't get up and it swept him over the fall and he drowned he wasn't doing anything wrong he was doing something very enjoyable but it took his life and the illustration is that we can be doing something totally good to the ignoring of everything spiritual and it'll take our life so that's the expanding of the text in the noah then the illustration of the text is the thief the thief comes when you don't know it you don't know the day or the hour if you knew the day or the hour you'd be prepared right you'd keep your car locked up you would put your motorcycles and your bicycles in the garage and lock the door you would you would lock your car. I remember when people were going through our neighborhood and they were I guess they were looking for stuff people had left in the car and uh, you know you have the, the dashboard open and the console between the seats open and you ask the policeman what to do. They say well lock your car don't keep anything valuable and keep a light on. And I go I think what I'll do is I'll not keep anything valuable in the car and leave it open so we won't break the window to see that there's nothing in there and keep the light on. But the thief, as dumb as he is, you know, don't you, you know, you, you read these crime shows. I mean, you read the crime report, and you think, did he think he's going to get away with it? You know, thieves are dumb, but they're not dumb enough to send you a text and say, hey, coming tonight about 3.30, or, you know, giving you a, putting a post-it note on your door and say, see you later, you know, because you'd be ready. But Jesus is like that thief, not that he comes to steal and to rob and destroy, but he comes at the time that you don't expect him. And that theme is expanded, there we go again, expanded throughout the rest of Scripture. It says in 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. First Thessalonians chapter 5, And one, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write you. For you know that very well the day of the Lord will be like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly. And then you remember Revelation chapter uh, 3 and verse 3. Remember before you ha- what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what time I come to you. And then one more in Revelation 16. Behold, I come like a thief blessed is he who stays awake and remain clothed so as not to be naked and go shamefully exposed the point is to be forever ready perpetually prepared is what one writer said to be ready because no one knows the time the day or the hour not even Jesus isn't that a mind-boggling thing that Jesus says he doesn't know that's got to be Jesus talking in his humanity that in his humanity he doesn't know I'm sure he knows now but he said I I don't know I'm like you and the thing to do is to be prepared the only way to be prepared is to be always prepared you know you you don't wear your seatbelt when you think you're going to have a wreck when do you out of your house going well I think I'm a wreck today I better put my seatbelt on you're going to be prepared because you put the seatbelt on every day and so the Lord is saying you live in a bad neighborhood and I could come any day like a thief and you need to be ready R.C. Sproul uh, preached four or five sermons on this passage and he, he basically said the way you prepare yourself is saying would I like to be found doing this when Jesus came back would I like to be found doing this when Jesus came back and somebody asked him what about playing golf and he said God gave you recreation I'm not saying you know if Jesus comes while I'm playing tennis or golf or whatever he said but I sure don't want to be playing golf on Sunday morning when Jesus comes back are you, it's a sanctifying thing. First John says, He who looks at him who is pure purifies him like he is pure. There, the idea that Jesus coming back at any minute does sanctify you. It makes you realize all of life is lived before the presence of God. You know, marrying and partying and celebration, that's God's gift to us as well. But we're sanctified by saying, you know, what if he comes back? Derek Thomas said that he went to visit these three older ladies. And I don't remember when this sermon was preached, probably uh, 20 years ago. But these ladies were, one of them was 100. And he got to talking to them like you do about the old times. And, you know, just trying to find out about their their life. You know, somebody lives to be 100 and still of sound mind. You want to find out what they did. And so he said, you ever go to the movie, picture show, you know? And they kind of all blushed. And one of them said, well, we we went one day. And we got to thinking, would we want to be in here when the Lord came back? And we've never been back. Forty or fifty years. Now, I'm not condoning don't go to a movie theater. But you have to admire the way they filtered their activity through the question. Is this the way that the Lord would want me to spend this day? And it, it might be. I remember going to see a, a terrible movie, not in that it was bad. It was just a bad movie. You know, you've heard of B-rated movies. It's about a D. But uh, I went with my friend Dennis Royal right after exams at RTS. I was, just, I was just blah and flat. And he said, let's go to the movies. And nothing was on, but we went to see nothing. And uh, I think it was a, where we ought to be that day. But is that where you always ought to be? Also, it's sanctifying in a positive way. You ever, anybody ever heard of Lord Shaftesbury? His dad was a duke that made him a lord. I don't understand all those titles of royalty, but he was a, a duke and he had a lot of money, had a lot of influence because he was born into royalty. And he got converted, and in his conversion, he got to seeing the world with different eyes. And he began to see how God's people were being mistreated, and uh, make sure I get the order right. The first thing he did was, was he started working with the mentally ill. He went to an insane asylum, and he said the people there were basically unclothed, not fed, and a lot of them were kept in chains. Can you imagine, you know, in the 1700s, that's no understanding of Alzheimer's or anything like that, or dementia or something, and how they would treat people. And so he went to working on reform in the mentally ill and the insane asylums. He also then focused on children who were working, children the age four-year-olds, we got any four-year-olds here? They even. We don't even They don't even come into service because, you know, they're so small there in the back. Children as, as small as four-year-olds would work from 6 in the morning to 10 at night in the factories and in the mines, especially in the mines and chimney sweeps because they were small. They could go up the chimney. You could send, teach your four-year-old to climb up the chimney. They probably thought it was cool, you know to get suddy and dirty and all of that, but what it did to their health, and he brought reform there. He saw that the poor were not being educated, and he worked on developing education, and they said that by the time he was through, he had helped uh, educate, affect the education of 300,000 people. What was his motivation? Lord Shaftesbury said this, There has not been one hour in the last 40 years that I didn't think about the coming of the Lord. It didn't make him passively speculating on when God was going to come. It made him actively trying to redeem the world, to do something. You see, that's what it makes us do. It, it turns us into servants, and that's what goes into the last point. We expanded the passage with Noah. We illustrated the passage with the thief, and now we're going to apply the passage by being servants, faithful servants. This is something that uh, was pretty common back then, that you would have a wealthy landowner, and he would he would leave for some time, and he would leave a, a Wealth, a, a faithful servant and the faithful servant's job was to make sure the other servants were taken care of and so you're talking about a wealthy man here that's got servants that's taken care of servants and he's supposed to feed them and people understood this illustration and, and he said if the master stays a long way but he comes back and finds his master doing what he should it would be good Your translation might say it would be a blessing. The idea of blessing is his master will speak well of him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that idea. And he would give him more to do. God's rewards sometimes are more responsibilities, bigger ministry opportunities. But if the man was evil, if he thought, that's what the passage says, if he thought... Begin to think the Lord's not coming back for a long time and I can do what I want. And he begins to mistreat his fellow servant and beat them. And then he begins eating and drinking with drunkards, which means he's a part of them. He said that man will be cursed when the Lord comes back. He'll be cut in two and cast away with the hypocrites where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth jesus is teaching us that not only when he comes back will there be a reward there'll be a judgment we're not going to talk about that right now we've got a couple of parables next couple of weeks that we'll deal with that some more but a servant the servant was giving a task one task take care of the servants make sure they're fed What are you called to do? Did you know the word vocation comes from the Latin word for calling? What are you called to do? The Reformers broadened the idea of calling because we had narrowed it into an understanding that only monks and priests and folks like that were called. They were called to do the Lord's work, you know. And uh, the reformers said that everybody's called in whatever they do to serve the Lord with all their heart to the glory of God. And they began to say the Lord is as happy and as glorified with a farmer or a woodcutter as he is with a priest if they're called to do that. What are you called to do? I, I, spoke, at PDF, uh, I spoke at a bio last week and we talked about how to know you're called and i said i I really don't know but i gave them this illustration in my life i said you know that when i get back in the car after visiting somebody in the hospital or the nursing home i feel god's pleasure it's kind of like eric little god made me fast and when i run i feel his pleasure god made me a pastor And when I do it sometimes, sometimes I feel his pleasure. What has God called you to do? Teacher, engineer, farmer, lawyer, doctor, nurse, homemaker? What you do is you find out what God has called you to do and you do it faithfully until God calls you home. Horatio Bonar said this, a holy life is made up of a multitude of small things. It is the little things of the hour, not the great things of the age, that fill up a life. Little words, not eloquent speeches or sermons. Little deeds, not miracles or battles, or one very heroic effort of martyrdom make up the true Christian life. It is a, it is a, it's a simple, constant sunbeam, not the lightning. The waters of Siloam that go sweetly, softly in the meek mission of refreshment, not the mighty waters of the rivers, great and mighty, rushing, torrent, noise, and and force that are the true symbols of life. A holy life is made up of a multitude of small things done faithfully. So what would you do if you knew the Lord was coming back today? there was a time in 1700s when Connecticut was not yet a state and uh, they were having a debate on how to relate the state government to the federal government and there became a great storm and everything got dark and it's known in Connecticut as the dark day and it got so dark, you could, no lights, you know, like that, no electricity, it got so dark that people began to think maybe this is the day of the Lord, you know, the the skies are dark and he's going to come in the clouds and started going home and uh, saying that the day of the Lord's coming and there was a guy by the name Colonel Davenport and he stood up and said this brethren it may be the day of judgment when the Lord comes back I do not know the Lord may come but if he does I want him to find me at my post doing my duty up to the very last moment Mr. Speaker, I move that candles be brought in and that we can get on with the business of the colony. I think that's the attitude, you know, that we're so convinced that this is what God's called us to do. We just keep doing it. It doesn't mean it doesn't change and you don't go into different phases, but even there you understand what God's called you to do and you just keep doing it faithfully until he calls you home or he comes back. Let's pray father thank you for this uh, lesson thank you that you have illustrated it so that we can understand it help us not to be absorbed with the daily activities that we ignore the spiritual and the eternal help us to be prepared and know that you'll come like a thief in the day that we don't expect it and help us to be faithful servants And maybe people have not given themselves to you as Lord and Master. May they become servants and slaves of yours today, even as they surrender to you in the name of Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.